Our scripture this morning is from John chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There is a Japanese automaker that released its 500-year plan for making cars. Um, Consider for a moment what that must be like, the perspective you must have in order to come up with a 500-year plan. Um, Some of you, like me, don't know what you're having for dinner tonight, uh, let alone being able to plan for 500 years from now. Um, But but pause for a moment and think about this. What would your 500-year plan look like? We can even think about that for New City. What would New City's 500-year plan look like? There's churches that have been around that long. And so why I think this is an important question is because another way of asking it is, what could you do now that would have an effect 500 years from now? To give you some kind of context, uh, Leonardo da Vinci died about 500 years ago. Um, In 1517, Martin Luther kicked off the Protestant Reformation. And I wonder, when Luther was hammering that parchment to the Wittenberg door, did he know that his hammer would be resounding 500 years later? Um, And so you might be saying, well, I'm not a da Vinci or a Luther. I'm simply ordinary. Um, Well, consider some other ordinary people like yourselves, uh, your ancestors 500 years ago right? Um, I did the math, and by that I mean I googled it. Uh, 500 years ago would be your 29th great-grandparents, okay? Um, And these ordinary people, I wonder if you know any of their names. Probably not. And yet they are critical to your very existence today. Uh, The author Bill Bryson says it like this, not one of your pertinent ancestors was squashed, devoured, drowned, starved, stranded, stuck fast, untimely wounded, or otherwise deflected from its life quest of delivering a tiny charge of genetic material to the right partner at the right moment in order to perpetuate the only possible sequence of hereditary combinations that could result eventually, astoundingly, and all too briefly in you. That's another way of saying the only way you can have a 500-year plan is if you have a vision for multiplication. If you have a vision for multiplication, and I don't primarily mean biological multiplication, although I do mean that. And so what I wanna do is I wanna look at John chapter 12 uh, and really just meditate on verse 24. And so if you've got a Bible, go ahead and open your Bible to John 12, and we're gonna look at verse 24. And what I wanna see is that we were made to multiply. We were made to multiply. We're gonna look at that under two different headings. The first one is faithfulness, and the second one is fruitfulness. 
If you would, look at John 12, verse 24 with me. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, which for the record, that's Jesus speak for, listen up, this is really important. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now in our series in Everyday Discipleship over the last two weeks, we've looked at self-denial one week and servant-heartedness the next week. And, and the reason why we're doing this is because death to self is the underlying dynamic of all discipleship. Um, uh, to kind of make it plain, what I mean is that self-denial, death to self, servant-heartedness, uh, this willingness to give, surrender yourself is the iOS that runs all of the apps of Everyday Discipleship. I realize I just ostracized all of our Android users, but you get what I mean by that. And, and so why this is so significant, why we keep coming back to this over and over and over again is because Jesus comes back to it, right? He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so really Jesus's definition of faithfulness in this parable is death. It's death to self, and so what I want to do is I want to look at what would faithfulness look like over a lifetime? I was really helped by a spiritual author named Ronald Rollheiser who, who kind of defines three stages, if you will, of Christian discipleship. Um, and, and he maps these out for us like this. The first stage is this, the struggle to get our lives together. Stage one, the struggle to get our lives together. And, and many of us, some elements of this stage will persist throughout our entire lifetime. And really what you're asking at this stage of discipleship is, who am I? What will I do with my life? Who loves me? Will I be called to marriage or singleness? Where should I live? What should I do? We ask and answer these questions. And, and at some point, most of us really do come to answers on all these questions. We have a home, a career, a marriage partner, or we're at peace without one, a, a vocation, a purpose, a good reason to get up every morning, and a place to return to at night. Some of you are in the struggle to get your life together right now, and that's okay. That's stage one, that's where you are. But there's another stage. Stage two is the struggle to give your life away. The struggle to give your life away. And so really what you're asking and, and answering at this stage is not so much what am I gonna do with my life, but how can I give my life away so as to make the world a better place? Questions are gonna be things like, how do I become more generous? How do I make my life a contribution? How do I remain faithful to my commitments? How do I invest in the people around me? How do I give my time and my skills and my money in order that others might flourish? In other words, how do I give my life away? That's stage two. Stage three isn't so much about how do I give my life away, but it's more how do I give my death away? How do I give my death away? In other words... How can I die in such a way so that my, my death is as much of a blessing, as much of a gift to those around me as my life was? How do I live the remaining years of my life so that my death will bless the people around me as my life once did, so that my family, my church, and the world would be better for my existence in it? This is stage three. How do I give my death away. And I've known 20-something-year-olds that have gotten to stage three because of illness or tragedy or suffering. This isn't so much based on age, although that's a huge component in it. And so what stage are you at in, in, in this faithfulness over the course of a lifetime? Because what we're seeing here is that 
Faithfulness over our lifetime is really getting our lives together in order to give our lives away. And so the way that Jesus puts it is, we are like a grain of wheat that if it falls into the ground and dies, it will bear much fruit. Now, faithfulness is hard. (laughs) We have to recognize that. Giving our lives away is hard, but there's good news in the fact that God is probably more committed to your faithfulness than you are. Um, I'm not sure what this social distancing time has been like for you, but during our quarantine, I've been spending a lot of time uh, getting my yard in order. I've been pulling weeds and watering things, and you know, we all quarantine in our own way. This is my way, and so um, I pity a weed in my yard today. Right? It's just, it's just bad. And and so one of the things that's really interesting is um, my yard hasn't really gotten much water lately. We've not gotten much rain, and and so. Almost all of the grass is brown and dead. And the only thing alive are these patches of green spots, these really tall weeds. And as I was out there pulling weed after weed after weed, I kind of let my yard go for a while. um, I was reflecting on it and I was thinking, you know, this is actually a metaphor for what God's doing in my heart during COVID-19. In other words, we're in this spell right now, this kind of dry cell, this, this season of the wilderness, of the desert. And what it's done is, is it's actually revealed to me the weeds that have grown up in my heart in order that God might prune them, in order that God might pull them, in order he might root out my sources of security that are not him. For instance, I've been anxious about money lately. I haven't realized how much the God mammon was the source of my security until there's a threat to that God. And so God is allowing me to go into the wilderness in order to reveal, in order to root out, in order to pull some of these weeds in my heart. Paul says suffering eventually produces character. This is how it happens. God is more committed to your faithfulness than you are. And the reason why is because he, like you, wants your life to matter. He wants your life to matter. And if there's one way in which you could ensure and if in which you could be really committed to your life not mattering, it's to fail to invest it in other people. It's to fail to give your life for the sake of others. And, and so why Jesus says to us, uh, whoever loves his life will lose it is because Jesus is after our faithfulness. He's after our willingness to give our life away to others. So if that's my operating definition of faithfulness, I want to look at what is fruitfulness? What is fruitfulness? Well, when I talk about fruitfulness, what I'm really getting after is is that inherent longing we all have to live a meaningful life. Um, What the developmental psychologist Eric Erickson called uh, generativity, what the Bible calls fruitfulness. It's this, it's this ability in order to nurture somewhat of a life that will actually outlast itself. That's what fruitfulness is. And so if faithfulness is the willingness to give your life away, fruitfulness is the result of giving your life away. Fruitfulness is multiplying your life into others. And this is really important for you to hear this because faithfulness is our part, but fruitfulness is God's part. You've been called to give your life away. But when you give your life away, you're doing it trusting, abandoning the outcomes to a God who knows how to water soil that is barren. A God who knows how to bring fruitfulness where there seems to be none. 
And so when Jesus gives us this parable and he says, if the seed, if the grain of wheat dies, it will bear much fruit, he's actually pulling on a thread, a theme that runs through the whole story of Scripture. Like if you open up your Bible to page one, you see that, that God creates man and woman in his image and then he blesses them and says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Fruitfulness. Now, some people have made the joke that uh, be fruitful and multiply is the one and only command that humans have never had a problem obeying. Um, that's called Bible nerd innuendo. It's another sermon, I'm sorry. But, but in page one, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says the exact same thing a few pages later to Noah, be fruitful and multiply. The promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is this, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. In other words, be faithful that I may multiply you greatly. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. Do you remember why Israel was persecuted in Egypt? Why Pharaoh made life so awful for them? It's because he feared them. Why? Exodus 1 says, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Even in exile, this was the case. Jeremiah 29, a, a chapter that shaped our vision as a church uh, just as much as any others, this letter from Jeremiah to those in exile could be summarized, his challenge, his call, his command to them could be summarized in these words, multiply there and do not decrease. Now, when we get to the New Testament, there's this subtle shift of emphasis towards a spiritual multiplication, those who are born of the Spirit, as, as Jesus says. And, and Jesus puts it this way, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. That's John 15, 8. Or if you read in the story of the early church in Acts, it says this in Acts 6, and the word of God continued to increase and the numbers of, number of disciples multiplied greatly. So in, in summary of that kind of sweep of scripture, I want you to hear me say, we are faithful. God is fruitful. We, as human beings and disciples of Jesus, were made to multiply. But this is why infertility hurts so much. This is why the pain of barrenness strikes to the core of our being. And I know that there are women and men in our congregation who have borne this burden uh, for years. And, and so barrenness is actually a theme because multiplication and fruitfulness is a theme. And, and so all throughout scripture, you see women like Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel and Hannah and Elizabeth all dealing with infertility, with barren wombs. The Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it like this, barrenness is the way of human history. It is an effective metaphor for hopelessness. There is no foreseeable future. There is no human power to invent a future. But barrenness is not only the condition of hopeless humanity. The marvel of biblical faith is that barrenness is the arena of God's life-giving action. Barrenness in the biblical story becomes a metaphor for hopelessness on our own, for a sense of hopelessness apart from God's life-giving action. And, and so I know that whether you biologically struggle with infertility or metaphorically struggle with barrenness, uh, this is incredibly painful. When you feel like you've been faithful, but instead of fruitfulness, your life feels like futility, that hurts. 
And so what Jesus says here uh, about this barrenness of our life, about the fruitlessness of our efforts, uh, is he says, if the seed dies, it bears much fruit. But that's a statement about reality. It doesn't give us a time frame, does it? Does it? And so disappointed desires over time, they hurt. They're painful. But here's where the metaphor actually helps. Right here is where Jesus is offering us some good news because any gardener knows the long and patient faithfulness that's required for a tree to bear fruit. Right? There's consistent sun and soil and water. There's slow, oftentimes imperceptible growth that happens. And then eventually, after days, weeks, months, maybe even years, a little sprig, a little vulnerable green sprout breaks through the surface of the soil that gives you the hope of new life. I know some of you are there right now. You're dealing with this process of patience between your faithfulness and God's fruitfulness. And that's a hard place to be when we look at our life and we see barrenness. And so we've opened our hands to surrender to Jesus, but they remain empty. What do we do? Well, I'm, I'm helped by verse 21. I'm helped by uh, what it was, the request that prompted this parable because it, it is actually good news for us. Look at verse 21. You'll see that the Greeks, these, these people that represent the entire world outside of Israel, the Greeks come and they say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Like, I hope that every one of your expectation, I hope you expect that anytime one of your pastors gets into this pulpit, uh, that you could say, sir, we wish to see Jesus. That's our hope. That's our good news, right? And, and so Jesus' answer in verse 23 is, it's startling. He says, the, t- the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. This is surprising because up to this point, Jesus has been a Houdini of sorts. Like he's been slipping and dodging and avoiding uh, anybody knowing who he is or arresting him. But right here, right now, he says, my hour is imminent. It's here and now. What's changed? What's going on here? Well, in John's gospel, Jesus's hour is his death. But interestingly, he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified which if you take that at face value is confusing, right? Um, Because isn't death defeat rather than glory? Like isn't faithfulness without fruitfulness futility? Isn't it true that crucifixion is the most shameful way to die, not a glorious way to die? What could Jesus possibly be getting at here? Well, the only way we can see how Jesus is glorified in his death is if we begin at the beginning. I mean, all the way back to Genesis chapter three, the the proto-euangelion, what the church has called the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. It says, I will put enmity between you, that's the serpent who led uh, Adam and Eve out of the garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. In other words, Jesus is the seed. He's the one who's been promised. He's the the snake crusher who's come to lead the sons of Adam and the daughters of Eve back into the fruitful garden of Eden. Jesus is the promised seed, but even the seed bear fruit unless he died. So I puzzled myself around this. How is it that Jesus is glorified in his death? How is verse 24 primarily about Jesus and then secondarily about you and me? And and as I was on a run, I was meditating on verse 24 and and it struck me. 
It's, it's really subtle, but look again at verse 24. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. What does that mean? Think about this. For all eternity, the Son of God was basking in the abundant, fruitful life of his Father. For all eternity. And so this is what Jesus calls eternal life, and he alone had it. So if the Son of God didn't become a human, he alone would still have it. Even if Jesus of Nazareth ascended to heaven without dying on a cross, he alone would still have it. You see, because it takes a seed uh, dying for there to be any crop. It took Jesus dying for there to be access to the fruitful presence of God. And, and so what's really going on here, how it is that Jesus could possibly be glorified in his death is because the love of God is by nature outgoing and sharing and ingathering. And so Jesus, the son of God becomes man and, and in, be, in doing that, he dies and he sows his life like a seed in the ground. In, on Holy Saturday, which is coming up a week from now, on Holy Saturday, Jesus was literally buried in the earth like he talks about the seed here. And we patiently wait and we expectantly hope for Easter Sunday when he would come back up out of the ground bringing new abundant resurrection life. This parable is primarily about Jesus. The way in which Jesus is glorified in his death is because he is the seed, you are the fruit. You are the produce of God. You are his church. And so Jesus is glorified in his dying because the glory of a seed is to die in order to bring about an abundant harvest. And so Paul calls Jesus's resurrection the first fruits of the new creation. As goes Jesus, so goes the church. He gave his life in faithfulness and now resurrected it again in fruitfulness. And so will you. Faithfulness and fruitfulness is really death and resurrection. And so we see in this parable that, that this, uh, this parable teaches us that death and resurrection isn't just the story of scripture. It's the story of all creation and all life, especially every human life. And so that leads me to a concluding question, which is, how do I faithfully give my life away in the hope of fruitfulness? Because listen, you're only gonna die to yourself if you've got the hope of resurrection on the other side. The only way you could be faithful is if you've got this vision of resurrection, of fruitfulness as a promise on the other side. So how do you faithfully give your life away in hope of fruitfulness? The first thing is, I wanna go back to John 15, abide in the vine. Jesus said, if you abide in me, you will bear much fruit. Another way of saying that is, apart from me, you can do nothing. And so abide in the vine. Cultivate intimacy with Jesus in your life. Water anywhere in your life, in your heart, that, that grows your affection for Christ. And prune, root out anything that robs you of your affection for Jesus. Pursue, cultivate intimacy with him. Union, abiding in the vine. That's the first step of giving your life away in order to bear much fruit. The second one is to cultivate what, what I want to call whole community. And why I call it whole community is because I'm talking about people before you, beside you, behind you, and unlike you. 
So have people before you, have mentors, disciplers, um, people that are willing to pour their life out, give their life, sow their life into yours in order that you might grow and flourish. And then have people alongside you, beside you. Have spiritual friends, people that function almost like a trellis in your life um, so that they can structure and support you through tough times and trials and times where you desperately need other people to be beside you. But have people behind you too. People that are younger, either in age or in maturity and, and, and pour your life out for them. Invest in them. Labor in the lives of a few to see Christ formed and nurtured and developed in them. For many of you, that looks like parenting. For all of you, it looks like disciple making. And finally, have people unlike you in your life. Have people that differ from you. Give your life away to them, even though they don't share the same uh, economic status as you or social status, or maybe they have a different uh, worldview or religion or ethnicity. Give your life away to people that are unlike you. To cultivate whole community, people before you, beside you, behind you, and unlike you. As I close, I want to tell you a quick story. Um, uh, there's a documentary out there called The Church Forests of Ethiopia. The Church Forests of Ethiopia. And it's about this Ethiopian ecologist named Dr. Alameahu Wasi. And, and this ecologist basically is studying the fact that over the years, um, Ethiopia's landscape has been basically uh, torn apart by over-farming and cattle grazing. And so many of the trees that are inherent uh, to Ethiopia's ecology have been cut down and destroyed. And, and yet there's, there's one hope for the restoration of Ethiopia's ecology, church forests. You see, in Ethiopian orthodoxy, uh, there's this idea, this, this vision that is uh, for a church to be a church, it must be surrounded by a forest. They mean the literal church building. And the reason is because the church has to be a garden of Eden. It has to be an oasis in the desert. And so there are these pockets, these church forests throughout Ethiopia. And you, it's amazing. You watch this kind of like pan over view and it's just this barren wasteland with this incredible grove of fruitful trees with a, very, uh, with a small church right in the middle of it. And so this isn't just a vision for restoring Ethiopian ecology. It's a vision for restoring any city. It's a vision for restoring Orlando. Because as we, the church, as New City, uh, get our lives together in order to give our lives away, as we put our roots deep into self-giving sacrifice and love for the sake of our neighbors, our city will flourish. When we become oaks of righteousness, the city will flourish. Or as Jesus put it, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, faithfulness, uh, it remains alone. But if it dies, it will bear much fruit. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, O oh Lord. You are our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, you are the spirit of new creation. You are the spirit who uh, was breathed, hovering over uh, creation. And so give us life, give us breath, give us what we need in order to be faithful and fruitful. God, we wanna see our communities flourish. And we know that that only happens through the dying and rising of you, Lord Jesus. It's in your name that we pray, amen.